So tonight I'm going to kind of build off what we've been building on. I thought what John taught uh, last week just perfectly goes into this because we've been t- we've talked about love, friendship, the body of Christ, uh, building up the body of Christ. And today I was thinking about uh, my granny's house, which is connects to the property that I have. My, I live on some of my granny's property. And we had this thing, Louise, you remember my granny. We had this, there was this door between the kitchen and the living room, the Wilkins remember it, and behind that door was something very valuable. It was a frame of the door, a piece of wood, that ever so often all of us grandkids would go and stand up next to that door frame, get a pencil, and mark how tall we were, and put the date and our initial. I mean, Keith, Kim, David, Susan, Missy, Chip, all of us. Measure and mark. Measure and mark. And you know, it was always a fun moment when you measured and you saw a difference. You saw growth. But if you weren't careful, you would measure too quickly. And you might have to kind of, you know, grow a little bit on your toes to see that there was a difference. Because there wasn't a difference, Jody. We had measured too soon and we hadn't done any, any growing. It was a little disappointing when you made your mark and it hadn't moved. And so I thought about that as I was getting ready to teach this. Love has a mark that it is to obtain. You know, when I took my kids to the pediatrician when they were two years old, the doctors have a formula where they measure one bone in their leg and they could figure how tall my kids were going to be. And if you went to the pediatrician, you took your child, and, and the, they told you that your child was going to be six foot five, and the next time you took them in there, they were three and a half feet, three and a half feet, they're 15, three and a half feet, they're 16, three and a half feet, they're 20, three and a half feet, something's wrong. Because they had a projected height and, and, and they're not growing towards it. And so all this teaching we've been doing on love and building up the body, I had to ask myself a question. How much have you grown lately? Because there is a projected height for us. Do you really want to know what that projected height is? Yes. <laughs> Who knows? Tina knows, but she's very quiet. Come on, Tina. Jesus. Jesus. We're growing into his image. We're growing into his likeness. And that's the, pro- that's the projected height. I know that's a stretch. And for some of us, we're kind of going on our toes to look like we've grown in that direction. But I honestly had to look at myself and say, how much have you grown in love because there's a height to it there's a potential a growth expectation and the standard is Jesus so a lot of times we 
we come to a place where we justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to culture. We, we love more than so-and-so. But that so-and-so is not our projected image. Do you ever do that? Please tell me you do. <laughs> I, I mean, I do. I mean, or I love more than I used to. I've grown. I'm three and a half feet. But yet that's such a long ways from, from six and a half feet. And I'm not saying don't be, don't be pleased with your growth. Just don't be complacent with your growth. Don't be, don't be satisfied to the point of not pushing ourselves past the flesh and moving over into the God kind of love in a whole new arena. Because we're called to the highest standard, not just a high standard. We're called to the highest standard. Jesus is the highest standard of love. And we've talked about agape. I'm not going to go back over that. We spent weeks on that. But to love with God's love is, is a higher standard. So go with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to go there. I'm going to be reading out of the New King James Version. You're welcome. Can y'all handle some tough stuff tonight? Are you ready to stretch? Who said uh-oh? <laughs> I know, right? I know, right? We say we want to be like Jesus. Jesus is speaking in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was old, he's referring back to Old Testament. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I, Jesus, say to you, love your enemies. Ah, oh, we've talked about friendship. We've talked about blessings in our home. We've talked about building up the body of Christ. But let's talk about enemies here for just a minute. Jesus said, I say to you, love, of course, that's the word agape, that's the God kind of love, your enemies. Bless those who curse you. What did we talk about bless means? We talked about the blessing uh, on Sundays. What does the word bless mean? Remember? It means to say good things about, to speak well of, to speak well of your enemies, to say good things about. Man, y'all are going to be fun tonight. I'm just, woo, go Pastor Susan. Um, bless, speak good of those who curse you. Do good, which means do rightly or, or what's of benefit to those who hate you who detest you, who pursue you with hatred, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, which means insult or slander you. Yeah, that's not so much the way the world speaks of love. But it's what Jesus said. 
Why? Verse 45. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You know, God doesn't change according to us. God is love. And if we are the children of God, then our objective is to get to the point where we are love and the other person doesn't determine who we are. That's the goal. And, and it, it takes growth, right? It takes growth. He goes on in verse 46 and he said, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors, doesn't even the IRS do the same? I mean, that's what he's comparing them to. Don't even the tax collectors, the non-believers, don't they even love the people that love them? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors or the heathens do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. When we're mature in love, it's perfection. It really sums up the law and the prophets, doesn't it? That's perfection. How on earth do we do this? How on earth do we love our enemies? You know, I got to thinking today, okay, what makes an enemy? If I say your enemy, don't get all religious on me, okay? Unless you mean it. I know you can say we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, and, okay? And that's the truth. And I hope that's the first thing that comes to your mind. But when I'm talking about loving your enemy, what, who, what, what is the picture that pops? I don't want to know, okay? <laughs> I don't want to know. Who pops up into your mind? And what makes them an enemy? What does an enemy do? I'm going to wrap it up in, in what I, when I looked up the word enemy, what it meant, Anna. It meant one who opposes you. One who opposes you. And I thought, you know, Jesus, he, he wasn't a doormat, right? He wasn't a doormat. There, there was times he told them, you know, you brood of snakes and vipers. You, you're of your father, the devil. You're, I mean, there, there's times he, he said things that, that to us seemed rather harsh. And we've talked about this before, that Jesus dealt with people according to the texture of their heart. And that's, that's so, such a truth. But what I get about Jesus is he was love. And so if he looked at them and he said, you're of, not Roger, I won't look at you. You're of your father, the devil. Do you know he didn't do that for their demise? He did that for their good. 
But then he's liable to look at the woman who was caught in adultery and look at her and say, I'm not accusing you. Go and sin no more. I'm not condemning you. I'm not sentencing you. You go and sin no more. So we see this really tender side of Jesus, and then we see this side of Jesus that sat down and formed a whip and cleaned house. And a lot of people wouldn't see that as love, but it was. First of all, it was love for the Father and his house, and it was to be a house of prayer and not a den of thieves. And second of all, it was for the love of those people who were being immersed into wrong and who were being deceived. If Jesus did it, it was done in love. He didn't sin. So it was done in love. So I'm not saying when we talk about this that there's not ever a time that you set a boundary with somebody. Or there's not ever a time that you, that you, that you skip, just don't skip difficult conversations because you're thinking you have to be a doorman. I'm not saying that at all, but you deal with people according to the texture of, your heart, of their heart and you do it for their good and not for their demise. And we talked about this before in difficult situations on the friendship subject is the purpose is reconciliation, restoration, if at all possible. And, and that's the way Jesus functioned. He wanted, he was here to reconcile the world to the Father. That was his whole purpose. And he didn't do anything that went against that. He sums up here in Matthew 5. To me, it helps if I break this down. He asked me to do three things under the realm of love. He asked me to bless, which simply means for their hateful words, I give good words. You know, Jesus often said, don't repay evil for evil. Overcome evil with good. So that's basically what he's saying right here. You, you, when, when somebody curses you, and that doesn't have to mean cussing, but cursing, coming, opposing you with their words, you are to return to them not what they sowed, but what God sowed. And when they're cursing, you come back with good words. You know, sometimes you apologize even when you're not at fault. You can say, I am sorry if I made you feel that way. It was not my intention. You know, you can say things to de-escalate a situation with your words. A soft answer turns away wrath. Okay, we know these things, but are we doing these things? So just break this down on, and put it on your mirror or something this week. Bless. Give good for their hateful words. Put good words out. They put hateful words out. You put good words out. The second thing he asked us to do was do good. Do good. When one of, I looked it up in the commentaries. One of them said this, and I thought it was a great way of saying it. Give them every proof that you love them no matter what. Give them every proof that you love them no matter what. Why? Because you are born of love. That's who you are. We just got to start seeing ourselves. That's who we are. That's who the Father is. That's who we are. 
And it doesn't mean that you're a doormat. I say it again. But your response is to be from a place of love and not from a place of flesh. And this is where our mouths get us in trouble because I don't know about y'all, but I have one problem with this mouth. It's quick. <laughs> it's quick. If you say something, what I'm going to say is ready to roll. It's ready to roll. And it's, it's one thing I've got to work on is holding that back. Count to ten, Susan. Count to ten. In Spanish or something to slow you down. You know, something that makes you think about something else. And wait to hear what the Spirit is saying. It's, it's that immediate push to respond that gets us in a lot of trouble. Oh, yeah, somebody said amen. Somebody understands me. I appreciate that because it's, it's a place that we're having to, to grow in. So give them every proof that you love them. Do good. And doing comes in our actions. And a lot of times doing comes in our body language. What we do in those moments is so important. And the third thing he gives us to do is pray. Did I skip that verse? Oh, no, I didn't. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Pray. You know what? I was thinking, I, like, I took every one of these a day and I just tried to sit and think about them. And the thought that he gave me was war for those who war against you. That's what we do when we pray for them. We are warring for those who are warring against us. Whoa, why does that make the battle look like? Why does that make the battle look like? It changes it. It totally changes the mindset of it. And this, this is a mature kind of love to do this. It's the height of love. When we can love our enemies... Isn't that really the last frontier of love? This is where the miracles are. The miracles we want to see, the revival we want to see, the restoration that we want to see, this is where it is. When we can love those we disagree with, even those that war against us. Pray for them. And I love that John talked about prayer last week. Fervent, earnest prayer. Not just, oh, Lord, bless them. Lord, bless their hearts. Lord, do something good for them. No, he's saying you do something good for them. You bless your enemies. You do good for your enemies. You pray and war for those who, I'll never forget that, war for those who war against you. Isn't that good? We witnessed Jesus walk like this. And I know you're thinking in your heads, yeah, but that was Jesus. But Jesus was a man anointed of the Holy Spirit. And you are a man or a woman anointed of the Holy Spirit. He was the Son of God, but you are the children of God. 
He had the word of God, but you have the word of God. He was born of the word of God, but you're born of the word of God. He was, born, he was spiritually alive, but you're spiritually alive. So we kind of have to get rid of our excuses and we have to go, okay, I need to stretch and grow. I need to eat and grow. I need to eat the right things to grow in the love walk. I need to think on the right things to grow in the love walk. Luke 32, I'm sorry, 23, Luke 23. I don't know how much of this, I think we have time to read several verses here. Uh, Luke 23, 32. I'm reading out of the NIV. This is, you know, Jesus has been tried in the courts of man. He's been, uh, he's taken the stripes for you by this point. Uh, He's been stripped, shamed for you at this point. He's had a crown of thorns placed upon his head at this point, spit on, carried his, carried his cross, and placed there. It says in verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, these famous words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Would y'all do me a favor and let's just say that? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So that person that you pictured in your mind, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Oh, yeah, they know exactly what they did. They know exactly what they did. They meant to do what they did. No, you don't get it. We don't get it. We've got to get it. Father, forgive them. They really do not know what they did. They don't. They don't. They don't get the gravity of it. They don't get the total picture of it. But they know what they did. They don't get the big picture of it. They don't get the big picture of it. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Do the soldiers know what they were doing? Yes and no. Did they mean to put the stripes on him? Yes, but they didn't know. Crown of thorns? Yeah, but they didn't know. Spit on him, yeah, but they didn't know. Now, when you can put that on the people who have persecuted and cursed you, we're going to get somewhere. You're going to grow. And what they did to you is going to stop stunning your growth. It's going to lose its power. They divided up his clothes by casting lots, and the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him and said, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is Christ, 
of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up. They mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him that said, This is the king of the Jews. On and on they mocked him. And yet he left the words said. They don't know. They have no clue. My favorite, other than Jesus. But I, Stephen resonates with me. Because it takes away that, yeah, but that was Jesus' excuse that we use. Stephen was a follower of Christ. And in Acts 7, let's, let's take a moment and look at it. Because I think it's a great example of being able to um, say some tough things and yet be in the love walk. I'm going to read out of the NIV, and we're going to start in Acts 7, verse 51. It's a great place to start because he starts off with, you stiff-necked people. This was love. And I know it was love because I know how this ends. He's dealing with their hearts. He's trying to bring them into correction. His purpose here is to bring them to know Jesus Christ. And this is a last-ditch effort to get their attention. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And when you can be persecuted like this and you know what's about to happen and you can look up and see the glory of God, you've got a revelation of something bigger than your flesh. He looked up into heaven, saw the glory of God, and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is, he's still in the middle of this feeding frenzy that's about to take place. He is still pointing them to Jesus Christ. He could have kept this vision to himself, and they might would have walked away, but he's fixing to make them even matter because they crucified Jesus, and if Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, they're going to have to face the truth, and Stephen's willing to say the truth in the face of adversity to his, to his own death. And he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, which we know as Paul. While they were stoning him, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed while they're stoning you you 
pray. That's growth. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. He died. His last words were not, Get them, Lord. <laughs> Go get them. Avenge me. His last words were, Forgive them. Don't lay this sin against them. And then read on down into 8.1. We've taught this before, but not everybody was here. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. So Paul, when he was known as Saul, was persecuting the church, the early uh, New Testament church, uh, who believed in Jesus Christ. He was seeing to it that they, they were being killed and being persecuted to try to shut them up from talking about Jesus Christ. And he's standing there, and the, the people who are going to stone Stephen are laying their coats uh, at his feet so they can go do the duty of persecution. And yet, Stephen forgives the people who are standing there, which means he forgave Saul, which freed Saul to accept Christ on the road to Damascus. It's, it's, we've, we've studied this. We've, we've spent a whole session talking about this at one point. I don't even remember what we called it, but I'll never forget it. Because Stephen's forgiveness opened the door for God to work in the heart of Saul. He saw Jesus in Stephen. He knew about Jesus at the cross, and he knew about what Jesus had said. Father, forgive them. And here he sees it again. In Stephen, God's doing a work. And Stephen opened the door for that work when he forgave the man that was standing there with the coats at his feet. Love gives God opportunity to work in the other person's heart. It gives God the opportunity. It's not that you have to change them. It's just you give God the opportunity. Forgiveness gives God the opportunity to work in the person's heart. And then this is the next thing he said to me. And I know, I know that there are some things that this is really tough to wrap your head around. But God wants them free and he wants you free. And until we, until we can forgive, we're prisoner. Sometimes their opportunity for change starts first in your heart. Sometimes their opportunity to change starts first in your heart. Change in you. It's contagious. It's inspirational. It's, it makes people face a truth that they may not want to face. It may make them angry at first. This made the crowd angry when, he forgave, when Stephen forgave them and talked about Jesus. Made them angry. You know why? Because it faced them with the truth of a living Savior. 
It made them face the truth that Jesus loved them, that he died for them. And whether they ever received him or not, they had to see truth when they heard what Stephen said. They had no choice but to see it. They could deny it, but they had no choice but to see it. And we have that opportunity so often in life. We need a fresh revelation that if God is for us, who can be our enemy? You know what the scripture says? If God is for us, who can be against us? And it takes me back to that whole thing I went around and around in my head is what makes somebody an enemy? It's because I feel like they're opposing me. But if God is for me, if God is for me, does it really matter who is opposing me? Are, are we looking? Yes, we have been looking for man's approval. We, we've been longing for man's approval, right? We, we don't want somebody to oppose us. We don't want somebody to not believe in us. But we've got to get a revelation that if God is for us, then who can be against us? It, it becomes nothing. Not that we don't care about the people, but it becomes ineffective in our life to where it doesn't determine our actions. If God is for us, let's, let's go look at that. Romans 8. Oh, man, time flies when you're having fun. Let's see, or at least I think this is fun. Some of you are looking kind of painful at the moment. I'll read this, and then we'll, we'll get ready to let y'all visit. And it, please, if you're going to talk about somebody uh, that you've had to deal with this with, please don't use names or any indicators of who it is, because we're not out to hurt people. And I realize that sometimes stories are personal, and, and you may have walked through some of this, and you may want to use that example. Just be careful how you do it, okay? Romans 8, verse 29. Billy, I'm going out of the Amplified. For those whom he foreknew, of whom he was aware and loved beforehand, he also destined from the beginning, foreordaining them to be molded into the image of his Son and share inwardly his likeness. This is what we're growing into. Jesus, into his likeness. That he might become the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he thus foreordained, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. He acquitted. He made us righteous, putting us in right standing with himself. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, raising them to a heavenly dignity and condition or state of being. What then shall we say to all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be our foe if God is on our side? He just told you who you are. You've been acquitted. You've been made righteous. You've been given a state of being or a condition of being glorified with Christ. If that is your stance, then what man's opinion is of you cannot rule how you are. We just aren't yet grown in the fullness of righteousness. 
We've got to we've got to keep working on the milk of righteousness. In fact, the scripture pretty well indicates we really can't grow much beyond our understanding of righteousness. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be our foe if God is on our side? He who did not withhold or spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him freely and graciously give us all other things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect when it is God who justified that is, who put us in right relation to himself. Who shall come forward and accuse or impeach those whom God has chosen? Will God who acquitted us? You know what? Man's opinion is getting less and less here. It's getting less and less because it's who can condemn us? Who, who can lay charge against us when it's God who acquitted us? Who is there to condemn us? Will, will Christ Jesus, the Messiah, who died, or rather who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, actually pleading as he intercedes for us? Who shall ever separate us from Christ's love? Shall suffering and affliction and tribulation or cal calamity or distress or persecution or hunger or destitution or peril or sword? I don't know. You tell me. What are we going to let separate us from the love of God? That should be the answer. Nothing. Even as it is written, For thy sake we are put to death all the day long. We are regarded and counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's a, referring back to Psalm 44 in the Old Testament. Yet amid all these things, we are more than conquerors and gain a surpassing victory through him who loved us. For I am persuaded without doubt, and I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things impending and threatening, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we realize that nothing, no one, no words, no actions, of other people can separate us from the love of God, we will quit giving them so much power in our lives. It takes the power out of the word enemy when God is our friend. If, if enemy is a word that intimidates, that puts fear in you, and you want to eliminate, see, when we say someone's our enemy, what it really means is we're really scared of what they're going to say or do. You're putting value on it. Exactly. So if you're having a problem with that, go back and read these verses and let it take the power out of the word enemy. Who can lay charge to God's elect? Who? If he's the one that acquitted, if he's the one that justified, it takes the power out of the word enemy and it puts power in the word love. Every bit of that's about love. So Jesus has set this standard of love for us. It's really a powerful, it's really what we say we want. We want to lay hands on the sick and we want to see them recover. We want to talk to the person who's living in sin and we want to help them find redemption. 
We want to see change in the hearts of people. We want to see a change in our nation. We want to we see the next generation come on strong and powerful. We've got to walk like Jesus. We've got to talk like Jesus. We've got to do like Jesus. You know what he did? He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. That's who he was. That's who he was. That's who we're growing to be. The mark is here. And if we are still at three foot five, then we need to stretch ourselves a little bit. Amen? Amen. This, this ministered to me. It's pushing me. You know, and when I start talking about going into enemy territory, I'm really going to watch those words because if I'm not careful, I'm giving the word enemy value. You said it well, Billy. I'm giving it value. And really, who can be my foe if God is for me? Amen?